This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. And if you're a singer, you better not record a song on an album that you don't really love playing. You're going to play that song for the rest of your career. The pronoun game is another one. Somebody will walk up to another person and go, you won't believe what she said. And then the first person gets this big reveal. But in real life, you would never do that. Just in terms of trying to keep your job, everybody's like fighting and clawing and scratching to keep their current job, to get the next one. They don't even want your advice because they need to do everything themselves. There may be a couple other jokes that I would take back, but only because I continue to learn and grow and we don't want to offend regular viewers or filmmakers. I'm disabled. I have less than 50% of my hearing left and diagnosed with depression and anxiety. The books are just another way for me to try and let people out there know they can be heroes, even if someone tells them they can't. Hey, welcome to the Create Unknown, the home of Make Something Mean Something. I am Kevin Lieber. We're live on Discord, as always, because it is TCU night, Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Eastern. We have our awesome patrons in the episode chat. We have lurkers hanging out with us for free who are non-patrons, but future patrons. And with me, as always, is Matthew Tabor. Yeah, we're going to pull a Phil DeFranco and and jump right into it tonight. Um, (laughs) Since our guest today is the son of a small town preacher, our introduction will be properly biblical. Aficionados of theology and colonial American history will recall that 280 years ago in the humid Northampton, Massachusetts, summer of 1741, Jonathan Edwards delivered a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which included vivid descriptions of the fiery furnace of hell, while noting that God offers us all an opportunity to be forgiven for our sins. This marked the beginning of the first great awakening, and after toiling in a movie theater... Today's guest, Jeremy Scott, co-founded a legendary YouTube channel to kickstart a great cinematic awakening of his own. In eight (laughs) years, CinemaSins has delivered 940 sarcastic sermons of sorts, detailing everything wrong with virtually every movie you've ever heard of. Because, as the channel famously states, no movie is without sin, and we exist mostly just to remind you of that. 
Whether Jeremy thinks cinema's worst sinners will be offered a path to redemption is something we might determine tonight. His congregation has swollen to over 9 million subscribers, and CinemaSins' critiques of everything from The Joker to Toy Story have garnered over 3.5 billion views, and all in a certain number of minutes or less. The truth is that some love cinema sins, while others love to hate cinema sins, which seems to be the unavoidable nature of movie reviews and analysis on YouTube. There's also the Sincast, which has pumped out nearly 300 audio episodes, and something completely different, a three-book fiction series about the Ables, a gang of young superheroes in training who overcome, adapt, and leverage both their disabilities and their unique powers. In a video reaming the book he himself wrote, Jeremy found that he'd committed a total of 64 sins in the first one. Uh, right about when this podcast drops, I think, uh, his latest book will come out, Original Sin, from Preacher's Kid to the Creation of Cinema Sins, which details Jeremy's really unique singular journey into successful content creation through his one great passion of film. So, Jeremy, we know that Books and movies uh, or YouTube videos can't ever be perfect. But honestly, what's come the closest that you've seen? Oh, golly. In terms of YouTube videos? Uh, let's go with movies. Let's go with films. What's the closest to a perfect film? Well, uh, you know, if we're going to talk in the in the voice of cinema sins, I think the film <laughs> that has re received the fewest sins was uh, District 9. Of course, this was back... Uh, in our early days before we gave ourselves more time. Um, but I found myself saying a movie like Finding Nemo is pretty much perfect. When I watch a movie like Finding Nemo, uh, I have a hard time finding any decisions that I disagree with. Um, uh, the music choices, the voice work, um, it's just, it hits every note that it's going for uh, right on the head. Um, uh -huh, I think I would answer that one. Is, is it hard to watch a new movie uh, and just kind of really appreciate the movie without, without thinking, like, I, I'm really on guard here to identify all the problems with it? Um, I mean, it, it just depends on why I'm watching it. Uh, if I'm just watching for pleasure, as long as I'm enjoying it, um, I don't really think about sins or what I might write in the future. Um, but if I'm watching it for the first time while I'm writing sins for a video, um, it's a little more challenging because I have to rewind a whole bunch and double check certain areas of the screen and what have you, uh, make sure I haven't missed anything. Um, <clears throat> but when it's just leisure watching, I really don't break into looking for mistakes until the movie loses my interest, which probably isn't as often as some people think, but it's probably more often than most. Mm. I think it's interesting that you chose an animated film, Finding Nemo. Do you think, I mean, the, the, the gestation period of animated films is so, so long. Do you think that comes into play with catching mistakes and catching sins? And, and it just seems like with an animated film, I, I don't know how long those movies take exactly, but I know it's really, 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 really long. Um, sure. So it seems like there are a lot of people involved. It takes forever. It's a really slow process. It seems like they have a lot of time. They're not cranking things out in like a six-week shoot like a lot of well, other films. Well, they had a lot of money early on, and they were able to stay dedicated to that story-first motive. Where, And I do think that that matters, that long development time. And that's why you know 
Pixar had what seven to ten home runs in a row mm-hmm. when they were starting out. You know, before they really started. I think Cars Two was their first true misstep. Um, <clears throat> but I don't know a ton about that process. Um, <clears throat> but I know with Ratatouille, they were a couple years into produ- production and then brought in Brad Bird, and he spent the last half of the production and was able to put enough of a stamp on it that that movie went from what was considered a mess to what most considered to be brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because I, I do believe they had stricter processes in place. And then, yeah, they, they have more time than you know somebody at a major studio who's already got their release date for next July and can't budge from it. Right. Yeah. Because we've talked to a bunch of animators on this podcast. For some reason, I don't know, I, I always gravitate towards animators. I have so much respect for them. And, and you hear from them that, you really have to think that like a joke, for instance, is really funny because you're going to be working on that one joke for like a month. <laughs> and after the first like two days of it, you just hate it. And guess what? You have like another 400 hours of animating that one stupid joke before it's yeah. done, you know? Yeah. And if you're a singer, you better not record a song on an album that you don't really love playing because you're going to play that wow. song you know, a million times for the rest of your career. Uh, it's it's similar to that, I think. It really brings the quality to the surface. There's a, a series in downtown Las Vegas on Friday nights uh, where they have open free concerts. And uh, they're, they're usually middling kind of performers, you know, who are doing these free concerts, you know, people who are popular in the past and aren't so much now and a lot of real throwbacks. And, and sometimes you see somebody who... Uh, they were a one hit wonder in the sixties or seventies. And you look at them and you're like, man, dude, you've played this one song since 1967. It's the only song anybody knows. It's the only song anybody wants from you. And I, I I just wish I knew what it felt like to, to play that two minute, 30 second song, 85,000 times for a living (laughs) or else you don't eat. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Can't be easy. (laughs) It is a well, weird thing. It, I, I remember uh, reading an interview uh, uh, with Kurt Cobain from Nirvana talking about, and, and he would, I mean, he was only, Nirvana was only famous for really like three years, uh, feeling like an automaton where, you know, someone just needs to put the quarter in, in a slot in his back and he'll go out there like a <laughs> robot and play the music that everybody came to see. So that's after only three years, he felt like a yeah. robot. I can't even imagine what, uh, I can't even think of who, 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 who's a one hit wonder that comes to mind, Matt, when you think of these people playing in that, that venue. Oh, oh gosh. I mean, well, I can tell you, right. Said Fred is only playing on too sexy (laughs) for the rest of his life. (laughs) Yeah. Who can name, who can name another one? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking it up because I it's been, you know, two years since I was really, uh, really doing it. Uh, but yeah, you know, you, you get these people who, like Debbie Gibson, who, you know, she had quite a few songs, but uh, has made a nice career for herself bouncing back. I think she's got a show with with Joey somebody on the strip. But either way, you're kind of pigeonholed into this stuff. Yeah, I was thinking like um, Groove is in the Heart by D-Light. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> One nice. that came to mind. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Jeremy, you've, uh, this is the big question here. You've 
probably got this list of, you know, the, the greatest sins, uh, the things that pop up time and time again. What are they and why do they keep happening? Oh, um, <clears throat> well, the ones that happen the most often are just uh, usually screenwriting tricks like uh, you know, you've got to come take a look at this cliche um, where, you know, I can count on one hand the number of times in real life I've hollered to somebody, you better come see this without giving any context whatsoever as like you better come look at what the dog is doing or what have you but in a movie they'll always say you, you need to see this and it's just to build suspense for the viewer uh so the viewer is more surprised by what they see um and i don't you know in real life i don't fault a movie for doing that you know, when i'm wearing the sin hat and trying to find these things for the sake of comedy uh then you better believe i'm going to find fault with that kind of thing because people don't say that in real life, the pronoun game is another one where somebody will walk up to another person and go, you won't believe what she said. And then the other person has to say, who's she? And then the first person gets this big reveal. But in real life, you would never do that. You would just walk up to your friend and say, I'll never guess what that jerk Mary said. Uh, there's no suspense to it in a real life conversation, but it makes sense why it's there in a movie. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It almost feels like you got to see this is just trying to beat the audience over the head with a hammer for them to pay attention. Like there's like snapping their fingers at you. Like, Hey, look, look, don't change the channel. Yeah. Don't go up to go I mean, to the bathroom, please. You have to see this. <laughs> it's they very, like very to build meta. cheap. It is. They like to build cheap tension too. Like, uh, another one we've noticed a lot is somebody will arrive to a scene and the other person will say you're late. And then they'll just go into the scene. Like, there's no consequences for being late. There's never any explanation for why the person was late. It's just cheap dialogue to make sure the viewer knows these two people aren't friends yet. Uh, you're late. So that, that's another one that happens all the time. Is there a market for such a thing as, as your analysis here? Like I write a script. I want it to be twisted, turned, pushed, pulled, debunked, and criticized. All these little holes that I didn't see when I was writing it. I send it to you, you eviscerate it and send me back 91 problems. Does that kind of thing exist? Um, well, if it does, uh, I'm not participating. Um, I can tell you it we've come close useful. to that. Seems awesome. We've come close to that twice. Um, and once it sort of happened informally, um, but I would never give the advice to a filmmaker that I would put in a sins video because the sins video is, 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 a mixture of things, right? It's maybe 25%, 30% legitimate observations or criticisms about the film, um, logic lapses, things like this. Uh, but a good portion of the sins are just us making stupid jokes, like saying <laughs> Idaho is not a real place, uh, or <clears throat> being intentionally ignorant. Like my favorite one ever was when we called the Leonard Cohen Hallelujah in Watchmen one of the worst covers of Leonard, Cohen, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> we knew that song was him, but we pretended to be ignorant, and all the comments were like, that's the real Leonard Cohen, you idiot. So the, the Sins videos are a mixture of all these things. If someone in Hollywood were to say, here, eviscerate this script, I would not write anything like Idaho is not a real place, <laughs> or sure. I wish this character was my girlfriend. Um, but well, that's that useful. That being said, I think there's <laughs> a perspective I know one filmmaker who I'm not going to call out that, that them, likes our videos, that has used our videos when developing at least one film 
to try and avoid certain pratfalls. Um, but I also understand all the ones, all those filmmakers who would never do that and who think we're trolls. I get it. It's something that Kevin and I have talked a lot about privately uh, in recent months, because that's exactly what you do with a book. You know, you send it to trusted readers, whether it's a friend or an editor or anybody else. You're like, hey, if we've got a continuity problem, show me. If this character is not as interesting as I thought they were when I wrote it, I want to know that. So that's why I said the girlfriend comment is actually useful in a way. Like if that's the feeling that you as a viewer are getting out of that character, it's useful to know. Maybe maybe you should feel that. And maybe you shouldn't. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah, so so it's so strange to me that uh, scriptwriters and filmmakers would not embrace this process the way like every competent writer does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, again, the stories in the book that's coming out in May, uh, but we did get invited out to Paramount, uh, by, uh, the man at the time who was the president of the studio. And it wasn't a come teach us how to make better movies. It was simply that he had seen one of our videos and we touched on a few topics that he had argued about while the film was in production. And, at the time, it seemed like there may be a door for future conversations. You know how Hollywood is. Like, none of the people we met with work there anymore. <laughs> and that was only like four years ago. Um, so I, maybe one day, I don't, I guess people might think that way, but it's certainly not anything we, we sought uh, when we set out to make these videos. Yeah, I think that the, the ego thing is being <laughs> underrepresented here as it relates to Hollywood compared to like, an author of a book. Yeah. Um, I just think those are totally different things. And like you said, the turnover is so high in Hollywood yeah. and it's such a weird industry in general. Like it just in terms of trying to keep your job, everybody's like fighting and clawing and scratching all the time. Unlike yeah. almost any industry, I think um, to, to keep their current job, to get the next one, to not anger anybody who will like, blacklist them from getting hired right. again from this point. Right. Like it's all so uh, volatile that it creates a lot of situations where, yeah, probably people, they don't even want your advice because they need to do everything themselves. Yeah, um, no, I totally get it. I'm not, it's not an industry I have ever sought to really work in for all those reasons you just said. Plus, I think it's hard work. I think it's really hard work. And a lot of people out there might have in college, like me, said, I want to make movies someday. Didn't really know what the crap we were talking about. And as I'm an older movie fan now, and I see what goes into directing a movie, and it's not, <clears throat> it's not all art direction. A lot of it is putting fingers in the holes in the dike all day long and acting like a general manager of 300 employees. And uh, it's hard work. That's why... I'm rambling now. That's the glass of wine I had. Uh, that's why I thought Christopher McQuarrie for the last Mission Impossible film should have been nominated for Best Director because that was an orchestral production that spanned a year or more. And like to pull that off, the directing talent goes just beyond somebody's eye, I think. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It is when a lot you... of putting out fires oh. and dealing with egos and settling fights. And yeah, it's such a weird thing. For sure. Yeah. A real quick point. Uh, you, you guys were talking about the turnover there. Uh, it's it's less so in like broadly in media, but it's still 
it's still there. Like the shuffle is crazy. It's, it's worse than like free agents in sports. This is something that mm. came up uh, with us, with the podcast internally, you know, like a month or two ago, we had somebody who we, we really just wanted to flame. Like every once in a while you have the, a bad email communication or phone call or something. And, and you just like want that person to get hit by a boss. This is the way it goes. <laughs> the problem though, is that no matter how bad it is, uh, you know, you go off on them a year later, they're working at another company and you run into them again, uh, two years after that, they're somewhere else and they keep popping up. Um, like you don't really get rid of people in these industries. And for that reason, you have to handle everything with tact. You have to be professional. You have to pull back on the instinct to really go bonkers on somebody occasionally. Uh, mm -hmm. but that's a really important skill. We do try to mention the odd thing because we have so many creatives, uh, who listen to this. Yeah. Don't go bananas. You see YouTubers sometimes like shaming sponsorship offers and things like that on Twitter. Don't do that. Don't do that. Even if you want to talk shit privately with your friends, that's what everybody else does. Uh, think it in your head, <laughs> but be decent in public and to that person, because you will absolutely run into them again and again and again. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And the, the, the role reversal can, can happen really quickly where, you know, Oh, you're a yeah. top dog. And like, I don't need to deal with this person. And like you said, gosh, one, two years later, all of a sudden they're the top dog. You're the little <laughs> one. And it's like, all right, maybe you shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. Did did the uh what's the peeing character, the hob or the Calvin uh the Calvin peeing character that was like a decal on trucks? Remember we talked about that? Oh yeah. The Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. Yeah. On the back <clears throat> of like every truck from nineteen ninety <laughs> to ninety-nine. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be that person peeing on <laughs> like random industry people because the the pee is coming back the other way <laughs> eventually there's a high probability of that that's all so what are what are some of the uh what are some of the the constant offenders like the things that uh yeah, that you're almost guaranteed to see in terms of in terms of sins well the the first one uh is the logos the openings the opening studio logos and this is one that <clears throat> I, it legitimately bothers me in real life in addition to as the Sins narrator guy because there's no other form of entertainment that opens with studio logos, right? So you don't buy Taylor Swift's latest album and then we pop it in the CD player or pop it in your iPod or whatever the hell you use to listen to music. You don't have to listen to 45 seconds of Interscope Records is proud to present. <laughs> you don't, you get right to the first song. Television shows, they do production logos at the end of the show. And yeah. hey, guess what? Some of them are really famous, like Sit Ubu Sit, Good Dog, right. and the Bad <laughs> Robot one, and Bad Hat Harry, um, <clears throat> and... Movies are the only place where we have collectively decided it's okay for you to advertise to me first in the beginning of the actual content I've paid to see. Uh, and it drives me crazy. Just get to the movie and advertise to me after. I'll stay if you make those logos interesting like the TV people do. Treat them like end credit scenes from an MCU film and get creative with them. But, uh, you know, show me the film first. And uh, the other ones that people probably might be expecting almost every video, something like narration or reading. Uh, when, a, when a film opens with text on a screen, it's not always bad in real life, but we're always going to call that a sin. Um, 
just like narration is not always bad, narration, something like Shawshank Redemption narration can be wonderful. Um, but we're always going to send the narration. So Sorry, I was just looking up... Um I was going to to do canon. That's what I was thinking of. I was going to say, in terms of the the uh, like the logo at the beginning, the exception to the rule to to me would be something like the Canon Group. If anybody's ever seen those movies, because it's almost like with some studios, you you got to know what you're getting into before <laughs> before the film starts, and you see like that logo. You're like, all right, here we go. <laughs> this movie is going to be. <laughs> Uh, I know what type of movie this is going to be. If anybody's unfamiliar, God, there's a documentary just about those guys who made the Canon movies, but, um, uh, it's a lot of like schlocky slash amazing action films from the eighties, blood sport, Delta force, missing in action. A lot of Chuck Norris kind of things. They made that horrible masters of the universe movie, which I think was really what like ruined the company from what I remember from their story. But um, yeah, I I would play devil's advocate a little bit on the opening logo, just in case it's (laughs) it's like, it's like a, I don't know. It's like an appetizer almost. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. We are fans of uh, Bloodsport at the Create Unknown. We do, we send little babies. We send babies with their own names and backstories to everybody in the baby gang. And Monsoor Chinchilla's baby, Dr. Kelp Meat Can, uh, <gasps> actually was a consultant on Bloodsport. That's what, that's what the baby claims. Nobody can figure out exactly what he did, but uh, he claims to know Van Damme quite well. Um, yeah, so uh, we, we keep up on the Bloodsport news. Well, all right. That's. A little beyond my realm of knowledge, but uh. <laughs> it's a flawless bad movie, Bloodsport. Like that's one of those movies that, at least for me, um, there are movies that I loved watching once and would not watch again. Like um, like Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I loved the experience of watching that in the theater. I feel like it would be sullied like watching it again at home. Mm. Like I just don't mm. want it. I don't know. It seems like it would diminish my memory of it. Things like Bloodsport, if that's on. I will watch it for the 9,000th time. I don't know why. <laughs> it's neat because Bloodsport was able to give us in the 80s something. It was the 80s, right? God, I'm old. Yeah, um, it was around 88, I think. Yeah, was able to give us something that mainstream movies didn't usually give us, which was that visceral, real R-rated kind of violence. Even R-rated films at the time were more like Eddie Murphy swears a lot and there's gunfire right blood sport was like almost an underground film and it's nothing not to pardon the pun in the sense that uh it was it was it was going to show you the kind of combat you were not going to get in any other movie um so yeah i've seen that movie too many times uh that uh kick 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 jumper kickstarter kickboxer seen that one a bunch too right yeah, Kickstarter. Yeah. Kick, kick, <laughs> Kickboxer didn't quite have the majesty that uh, no, no, that no. Frank Duke most of his to the, films did to the not. Screen. <laughs> <laughs> there was a diminishing level of majesty throughout his <laughs> filmography, <laughs> <laughs> all the way through to Kickboxer Seven. Yeah, the majesty just dis- diminished. Uh, what, was the, what was the first movie that that you really took seriously? That, that you thought about, that you analyzed, that you did more than just watch and enjoyed or hated. Oh, wow. There, wow. there must have been something at some point in your life that, that got these juices flowing. Yeah, it was, I'm going to tell you, it was Terminator 2. It was T2. Um, yeah. And I'm in high school at this point. Um, and this movie's just come out on video. My brother comes home from college. 
I haven't seen movies in the theater my whole life. And mom and dad go away for the weekend. And the older brother's like, hey, I'm going to let you try a beer. And I'm going to let you watch <laughs> Terminator 2. And he spent <clears throat> maybe an hour explaining the first Terminator movie to me so that I would be floored in the second one when Arnold turned out to be a good guy. Oh. Um, and he set it up perfect. And, you know, most of the movies I'd seen up to this point had been, you know, I'd seen the Star Wars movies. I'd seen the Muppet movies. I'd seen a lot of Disney films, but I'd never seen anything <clears throat> that looked like this with that liquid metal Terminator. Um, right. But also that had this high of a concept that treated my mind as something to stimulate as well as my eyeballs. Uh, just the ideas this movie wants to wants you to wrap your heads around. Um and, you know, it's probably somewhere in my top 25. It's not in my top 10 now, but that's certainly the movie that first made me go, whoa, movies can be so much more than just candy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think that that's the best action film of all time, Terminator 2. I think we had it's, this discussion on the podcast and there was a little bit of an argument. I don't remember what the counter examples were. I but, think I probably gave some stupid counter examples. Like I, I probably <laughs> made the case that over the top was better. Yeah, well, come on. Yeah. <laughs> no one takes that seriously except you. <laughs> yeah, Which well, is okay. I mean, I, I knew this podcast was going to be trash when I asked uh, what's what's the only movie that, you know, the closest to perfect and I didn't hear over the top. I thought, well, clearly this guy's head is in his ass. <laughs> you should have worn your, your hat for this for this podcast. I wear it every day. Just yeah, I wear it every oh, single day. Oh my goodness. Oh my yeah. goodness. Same one that speaking of sins, like, see, I don't go uh, too hard into identifying problems uh, because I I just I can't really analyze film on that level. Um, But I do with things like historical accuracy, um, things with guns and Westerns, like the rate of fire on a whole lot of guns uh, in in Westerns that were before cartridges. So at a certain point, you have to pour the powder in, put a wad in put a ball in, crank a lever to jam that lead ball in, and then put a seal over top of it, then put the primer on a cap, and then you have to do that six times for the whole cylinder. Mm-hmm. This is not cool in a movie. They just bang, 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 bang. Uh, you know, I'll notice that kind of thing. Uh, but Wait, but six probably shooters the, the most, were that laborious? Before the cartridge, yeah. Before they were a self-contained cartridge that you would just put in the cylinder. Yeah, Yeah, you had to... You had to hand load them with a cap and ball. Uh, but but I do want to throw over the top under the bus. That's why I'm bringing this up, because it's the most egregious sin that I can think of in a movie that I've actually watched. Halfway through the movie, Sylvester Stallone's character's name changes. <laughs> it, <laughs> what? It goes. Yeah, it, it goes from Lincoln Hawk to Lincoln Hawks. And it has blown my mind that nobody <laughs> on the set was like, hey, we're we're not using the right name anymore. Let's <laughs> let's use the name we used in the first forty five minutes. <laughs> it's insane to me. I don't know how that one gets by. I truly don't know how that mistake gets by. You know, you know how it gets by? Booze and cocaine. <laughs> oh my god, that's because amazing. It's the eighties. <laughs> that's how it got by. Hawks. That's amazing. That was probably just somebody slurring on set. It's Hawks. Uh, Maybe we talks. just did uh. Mighty Ducks for one of our videos, and we noticed one of the one of the characters' jersey 
has the actress's name on the back instead of the character's name on the back. And we were oh. pretty puzzled by that one. Like, who was the seamstress? They got all the other characters' last names correct on the jerseys, but this one girl, they put her actress name on the back, and we were like, was that like a gift? Everybody get a gift, and she wore the wrong one that day of filming, or what? Like, anyway, it was bizarre. Yeah. It was a bizarre thing that I can't figure out how it came to be. That is weird. <laughs> oh, I really want to ask, because you, you brought this up earlier, and um, I've been forgetting to ask, and that that's uh, you 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 mentioned kind of trolling as part of your humor style in the videos, where you'll say something that you know is not true just for a reaction. How do you deal with people taking that stuff seriously and hating you because they think you're an idiot when you're literally making a joke, but they can't tell the difference? Like, and and I know you know it's yeah. the internet. And like a certain percentage of the audience will not be able to understand the joke. And if they even find out it, it's a joke, uh, they won't think it's funny and they still think you're dumb. So how do you deal yeah. with blowback from your videos? You know, I think in the beginning it was, it was more difficult because we weren't, we weren't really expecting it. And you could say we're naive, but we didn't know anything about Poe's law and how 20% of people on the internet will misunderstand sarcasm and all that. Mm. We didn't know anything about that until we started. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll say something so obviously joking to us, like Idaho is not a real place. And we'll get so many responses from people who are like, you're American. How can you not know where Idaho is? It's a whole state. <laughs> and I never expected that level. And, you know, I don't, I can't do anything about how people feel about me, whether they think I'm stupid for those sins, or they think that I'm evil because I'm watering down the discourse of film or what have you. Um, I've heard about all the variations of it. And I long ago made peace with the fact that all I can do is make sure the people around me that I touch every day um, think I'm a good person and don't think I'm an idiot and don't think I'm evil. Uh, I, can, I certainly can't control the internet. And if I try, I'm going to lose focus of what got me here in the first place anyway, which was just put my head down in writing. So I, I try not to let it bother me. In the beginning, that was not as easy as it is now. Mm -hmm. Is it inevitable that, that everybody who watches you is eventually going to hate you? Because it, <laughs> look, it, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies, you're going to rip on something that is absolutely <laughs> precious to them at some point. <laughs> You know, the longer um, you go, it's, it's like you're guaranteed not to have any survivors at the end of the line. The people who have been with us the longest and know what we're doing, I think those people appreciate when we send their favorite movies. Uh, but yes, what you're saying in general is true. Uh, everybody has a favorite movie. Every video we do, every single one, there's somebody out there who's like, how dare you? You, I can't believe you even <laughs> touched this masterpiece. Every single movie we do. Uh, more on some than others, uh, but it's not, it's not unique to just the big MCU films or what have. Like we did, what did we just do? Jerry Maguire recently, and people were like, oh, mm, it's a masterpiece. That, yeah. And I'm like, I like Jerry Maguire, but we did Citizen Kane. You think we wouldn't do Jerry Maguire? Come on. <laughs> like, nothing's really off limits for us. Uh, so, I, you know, shrug. <clears throat> 
is how dare you disgrace Turner and Hooch? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Turner and Hooch. Everybody who doesn't know who Turner and Hooch is, Google it right now and and you will laugh because you'll. (laughs) It's way better than over the top. We had we had a pair of uh, rescue squirrels that were found on the side of the road about two years ago. And before we we gave, I believe there's always somebody who will like nurse everything back to health. And mm. uh, we found we found somebody like 40 miles away who ex- uh, exclusively deals in squirrels and chipmunks uh, that have been abandoned. And yeah, we named them Tango and Cash as nice. we fed them with an eyedropper for like 48 hours. Oh, uh, talk about a watchable piece of trash. That's Tango and Cash. Like that movie. Sorry if it's your favorite, second favorite. It's not good, but I love it. Um, it's ridiculous, I think, though. Is that the worst movie that you enjoy? There's got to oh, be one God, that's just no. absolute garbage. God, that no. You still like. Oh, man. A bunch. I really like watching that 2015 Ed Helms vacation reboot, which I freely mm. admit is not good. Um, I forgot I love, that existed. Holy cow. I know. <clears throat> I love Demolition Man. Yes. I love uh, Horrible Bosses. Yeah, that's too. come up before on this podcast. Uh, speaking of Jean-Claude, I will go to bat for Time Cop and Sudden Death any day of the week. Wow. Um, I wow. love myself some trashy movies. Can you, uh, can you, just for audience, because this movie is so ridiculous, briefly describe the plot of Sudden Death? Sudden Death is about a fire inspector who takes his kids to game seven of the Stanley cup finals in Pittsburgh and drops them off at the seats <laughs> to go inspect the fire things. But this also happens to be the night that terrorists have taken over the vice president's luxury suite at the game. And we've all been kid, there. One kid wanders away and the mascot is a bad guy, a karate girl. And let's just say, before the movie's over, Jean-Claude's fire inspector ends up in goal for the Pittsburgh Penguins <laughs> and blocks a shot. I kid you not. Uh, it is the most amazing display of absurdity you will ever see. I love it so much. Thank you. That script that sounds was... like a Mad Lib. You just put different things in and have a movie at the end. I think that's how they wrote it. I think that's exactly how they wrote it. <laughs> so going back to, to people hating you because that's awesome. Is sure, that yeah, viable? Let's, do that more. <laughs> let's go deep into how badly you suck. Now, uh, okay. is it a viable thing though? Because we've talked to people in the commentary community about this in the past. Is it viable to have something like a YouTube channel where there's almost like this hate to subscriber pipeline? You know, let's say you make a video that's about a movie that somebody loves. They're pissed off at your analysis of it. They maybe hate watch the next one. And, you know, seven videos later, they're into you. They get what you do. And, and, you know, they're part of the team. Is that my favorite example is a kid who watched our very second video, the Avengers, Marvel's the Avengers, Mm -hmm. and made a video longer than our video where he had his laptop next to him and he would watch our video and then pause it and then turn to the camera and explain why we were wrong. And within two, three weeks, that kid realized it was all a joke and became one of our bigger fans. We even referenced him on a podcast and he came in the comments and said, that was me. Um, (laughs) So, you know, that at least happened one, at least one time. But yes, there is a certain amount of the negativity that drives discourse and the discourse drives... Uh, all sorts of things, whether it's search 
uh, stuff with Google or showing up in related or suggested videos in YouTube's algorithm, or if somebody makes a video, here's all the reasons CinemaSin sucks, our videos are going to show up to the right in the suggested videos, and we're going to get traffic from that. I don't... Mm -hmm. The worst days for me are when somebody in Hollywood that I respect just tweets about how much they hate CinemaSins. I hate that, but it always increases our rate of subscribers and increases our rate of views, always. So I take the good with the bad, I guess. I want everybody to like me, but it's good for business that they don't. Have you ever gone too far? Have you ripped something uh, a little harder than you should have and, and regretted it after? 940 videos. You, you had to have uh, pushed the envelope a little too far at some um, point. I don't know that I've gone too far in terms of the, the target, the movie target. I think there are some jokes I would want back um, that, you know, in the very beginning, uh, the, the joke we use, because of course, well, let me explain. What we're doing is we're playing a sort of a character. The idea was, what if the somebody like the Simpsons comic book nerd had his own YouTube channels? Well, this guy, he thinks... He knows everything and he's not always going to be right, but he's sometimes going to be right. And he's probably going to be horny. And so early on we would write sins like this, this, this scene does not contain a lap dance, which has become the bane of my existence in terms of people who hate our channel. They'll just point to that and say, it's just a bunch of perverts. We haven't made that joke in seven years because we realized early on, this is being read as a little too pervy. Like we wanted to make sure that this is a basement dwelling know-it-all movie nerd and he's going to be, he's going to like hot girls, but uh, people are misunderstanding this um, and thinking that we're that way. So we, we softened that. So you know, for a while it became so-and-so is not my girlfriend in this scene. Or if there's a really pretty girl and she was on the phone, we would say, I am not the phone in this scene. Um, you know, so I would love to go back to those early videos and rewrite those lap dance sins to make them a little more palatable because I think it was an early dividing line for people who weren't sure how serious to take us. There may be a couple other jokes that I would take back, um, but only because I continue to learn and grow. And as much as we want to make jokes and this guy's a little bit edgy, you know, we don't want to offend um, sure. regular viewers or filmmakers. So it's constantly evolving. And has the audience changed from when you started to, to now, like, is there a, a any any patterns, anything that the, just the viewers are different now than before? Um, YouTube, one, one for all their problems, and I could do a whole guest appearance about problems with YouTube, <laughs> um, but uh, they give us lots of data. They give us so much data that we pay somebody to sift through it all and spit it back out to us in actionable, you know, understandable means. Um, and so early on, we noticed it was largely male um, and about half young males up to about 25 and half 25 to 40 something males. And only like 10, 12% of our viewers were female. And so we started intentionally sending movies that we thought might draw in a female audience like Frozen, which is, I think, still our most viewed video of all time or Tangled. Um, and it helped. It worked. We could see the female viewership. You know, YouTube will tell you, again, to the, for the most part, you're trusting that this YouTube user has answered honestly when they signed up for their account uh, so that they really are male and that age and they really do live in New Zealand or what have you. 
Um, but the, the data is really fascinating in terms of where the viewer comes from, how long they stay, how long they watch, what do they watch after they're done watching your video. Really, really powerful, actionable data on the back end for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, real, real, real quick. Um, I know that, uh, we, we, we have to get to your book before, um, before we run out of time, but I, I just wanted to go back a second to the, the joke thing that I, I just personally just anecdotally find it interesting um, how aware you have to be of even if you think like a joke is funny and you're playing a character and that character would be that level of vulgar or um, um, just say something gross. Right. Y- you can't do that because you know that a certain percentage of people will take that literally and it's not worth it. It's not worth their ire and it's not worth upsetting them or offending them or hurting them to make that joke. So you just like you said, soften the bat. Um, I just find that interesting. Uh, the, the, it, the process there, I just think is interesting to, to hear well, people about. Will take, people will take audio clips from a Sins video, sometimes chop it up and then post it someplace else to make it sound like I've said something worse than I have. Um, so that's something I try not to think about too much or I'd lose sleep for forever because um, <laughs> I've said virtually every word in the English language. Um, but yeah, it's not something, again, it's not something that we thought would be a problem when we started. Um, and as we've been along, we've, we've realized, yeah, okay, let's not make this kind of joke. That seems to be, you know, a little more sensitive a topic. And I'm sure we'll come across something else again here in the future, but, but yeah, everybody's different. Everybody's sensitive to different things. But let's jump, uh, like, like Kevin said, let's jump from film to books, uh, because you got a few, you got, firstly, let's, let's do the uh the opening round with with the ables because you okay uh had a cool pipeline with that with self-publishing it and then going the traditional route and then doing a couple more uh and the newest book is is a departure from that but where did that come from the ables series i had sketched out a little on a lined piece of notebook paper a little character breakdown Man, 2006. Uh, so this is six years before Cinema Sense even exists. And I sketched out uh, a troop of senior citizen superheroes who were all ailing and disabled. And one was a judge. And anybody that slipped through the system, the judge would activate the team and they would go and act justice with their superpowers. And That's that lived with me off and on for two or three years. And then... I had the idea to, to age them way down and make them kids. Um, and I got sort of fascinated uh, with the idea of uh, superheroes caught in between two worlds, right? Superhero movies always give us two main characters to focus on. The hero with powers and their buddy who's just a human and doesn't have powers and how they view the whole situation. I thought, what if there was somebody in between? What if there's somebody like my main character, Philip, who has telekinesis and can move things with his mind, but he's blind, so he can't see anything. How does he go about learning how to use his powers? He's not going to be accepted by the superhero world, but he's not just human. Um, and so that was my starting point. And I wrote a chapter, showed it to my wife. She loved it, and it just would not leave me alone. And then when CinemaSins took off somewhere around 2014, I went, you know what? There's an audience here. I can at least market this thing to whether or not it sells well so i finished writing it and knocked it out and we did pretty well i was pretty happy with how that first one sold then was approached by turner publishing uh, to publish reissue that first book 
and publish the next three, uh, two of which have already come and gone. And yeah, I'm really proud of it. I think there's some good disability representation in superhero stories and comic books, but maybe not enough. I'm disabled. I have less than 50% of my hearing left, and I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, and I'm pretty upfront about it. So, um, you know, this, the books are just another way for me to try and de-stigmatize the topic of disabilities and let people out there know they can be heroes, even if someone tells them they can't. Did you have any pushback from people in the disabled community uh, about uh, about you writing this? Because you you mentioned that you have a few uh, disabilities, uh, but not the ones that that your characters have. Right. Uh, so, for example, you're you're not blind. You're not in a wheelchair. Right. Uh, right. Was there any any friction there? Um, I saw a, a little bit of pushback from people who simply didn't know and said that I was an able-bodied person writing about disabilities. Um, and where I was able, I just corrected and said, I'm actually disabled. Um, and then one criticism was, how do, I, how do I say this correctly? My main character is blind. All of my characters have some something about their disability that gets in the way of using their powers. But by about a third of the way through that first book, they're working together to utilize each other's strengths to make everybody's powers work as strong as possible. And so I had a couple people accuse me of writing a blind character only to give him a version of sight 12 chapters in. Um, okay. Through to his, those people, his friends. All I would say uh, is and, just okay. have to wait and read the rest because that's partially true. But the whole journey is the whole four books and uh, he gets he loses it again. So anyway. <clears throat> so you've got the two out, one on the way, and there's a, a fourth, you said, that's that's planned? Three out. Um, fourth will be a year and a half away. I write, I write a lot of books. So three Abel's books. And then the one that's due next week, or as this comes out is, uh, the memoir, original sin, Mm -hmm. which sort of charts my upbringing as a preacher's kid, my time as a movie theater manager, and then how cinema sins came to be. Um, and then I just turned in a murder mystery that will be out in summer of 2022. It's not connected to any other book I've written. Um, and then I got to get started on the final Abel's book, the fourth and final Abel's book. So, um, I, I write too how'd much. How'd you get, how'd you, well, how'd you get going on, on the writing stuff? Because, uh, that's kind of prolific output. I mean, people, you know, people switch gears and write books, but they usually don't write four or five of them in three different verticals. Yeah. My wife just said to me the other day, you've written five books. And I was like, that's crazy to think about. Um, <laughs> I think I just enjoyed the journey on that first one and that first Abel's book that I self-published. And I learned so much that the subsequent books I've been able to fully flush out before I started writing that first Abel's book I just wrote without knowing where I was going. And that kind of preparation makes it more fun to write. These characters become, you know, almost real people to me. Um, And uh, I start to care about where their lives are going. And I just got the bug. I even said, when I finished the murder mystery, I said to my wife, I'm taking three weeks off. I'm not writing anything. And four days later, I had a new manuscript started. So I think I just, I <laughs> uh, can't, it's part of my, it's part of my DNA now. I can't stop. Uh, we have to get to our, our patrons questions before we sure. let you go eat dinner. But I would just say, I just want to ask you real quick about your writing process because I've been working on a novel for a long time and I can't get any work done unless I have nothing else to do, unless I carve out specific time, like a Mm. month or two months at a time. 
and just shut everything out and work on that. Otherwise, I can't like sit down an hour a night after dinner and just, you know, work on a chapter. It doesn't work. So I'd love to hear what your experience is well, with your <clears throat> workflow on that. You may not you may not appreciate my advice, um, but I use an egg timer. I am well, part of my anxiety is that I'm super easily distracted. I can barely go 15, 20 minutes at a time without needing to stand up and walk away to the other side of the house and do something else. It just it 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 stresses me out to sit still for a really long time. Uh, so I I sit down with a kitchen timer and I say I'm going to spend 20 minutes on this book or I'm going to spend 30 minutes on this book and when the timer goes off. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go do something else. I'm not going to think about anything else. I'm just going to go play with my dog or what have you, play a video game. And that builds repetition and the repetition builds and snowballs. And that's the best I can tell you is that when, when I started the first Dables book, I would stay late at work. I had a day job and I would write from five to six. And then <clears throat> as I got going and got closer to the end, I was writing from five to seven or five to eight uh, because I was I the momentum I had built made me want to stay in that place and keep writing. Uh, but to start that momentum, you, you just have to be regimented. Uh, I, I, for me, I find a kitchen timer works. It just keeps me, uh, that ticking that constantly here, blocks out the rest of the world. Uh, but I do it in these short little bursts, short little blocks till I get some momentum going. That would be my advice. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that's definitely the opposite of <laughs> what I've been doing, which is just... We've heard other people, though, who have a similar... Uh, kind of regimented schedule and it you know it, it seems yeah. to work or not yeah it's very interesting and I, that's why i really wanted to ask you because i love hearing what people's different yeah. ways they go about it are because it does seem to be all over the map so whatever works for you works for you and that's it's fascinating yeah. to me um all right matt do we have uh questions that we can throw from our patrons before we wrap yeah, up yeah we do we we've got a bunch and so i'm going to combine them because they're some of them are thematically similar. Um, mm. I want to I want to start with with two of them here. Um, it's a combination from Dan the Latch and the Kino Corner. The Kino Corner has a YouTube channel uh, that does film analysis and and criticism, and also has the Kino Cast with Oki, who is our guest uh, two episodes ago. Uh, Oki's weird stories. Um, so so first off, Dan's half is Cinema Sins criticism or satire. Oh, neither. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of both in there, uh, but we're, we consider ourselves a comedy channel, uh, first and foremost. Uh, and you know, there was a famous director who didn't like us. And then people defended us by telling me we're satire. And then he went off on the word satire and the definition of that word. And I have never publicly claimed that we are satire. I don't, there are apparently disciples dictionary disciples um the, the most i would say is we're playing a character maybe it's a parody uh it's an exaggeration um but don't take our videos for film criticism or for satire uh, our podcast i think we offer uh, some solid f film criticism from time to time but the videos are never meant for that it's just for uh, really observant nitpicky movie fans to and celebrate and enjoy nitpickery and this is Kino's half of the question, uh, which I think you just gave the answer to. Do you think Cinema Sins is real film criticism, uh, wh whatever that phrase means? No, no. There's again, there are bits in each video that I think count as real criticism, or that I would make 
as a real point if I were criticizing it as myself. But no, the videos as a whole are just, again, it's just a, a celebration of how obsessive people can get. When, you've, when you watch a movie over and over and over and over and over again, you start to notice all these little things. Some of them bother you, some of them don't. None of them keep that from being your favorite movie ever, but it's those little details that we're trying to have fun pointing, pointing out and just sort of sharing with each other. We're, we're certainly trying to celebrate film and not drive people away from it. Right. Well, that makes sense. These, these uh, next two I'm going to combine as well because they play off each other. Uh, Isaac asked how you, how you come up with the sins. Do you watch the film over and over? Do you watch it with other people and talk about the ideas? Do you do research online for it? And Jeff's half of the question is, how much time does all of that take uh, for each video? Yeah. <clears throat> Used to be I would watch a film, back when it was just Chris and I, I would watch a film two or three times um, while writing Sins. Um, these days, I just go through a movie once, but I, that's a lot of rewinding and rewatching. So I think I'm still ultimately watching it two or three times. Um, but we calculated at one point, and we have some writers now and some editors, but it's about 40 total hours for the writing and the editing of a sins video. Now that's spread in our case across you know, anywhere from three to five different people. So nobody's working 40 hours on any single video. Um, but yeah, I would say, I mean, most of our writers are, are spending about eight hours, eight to 10 hours writing. Uh, and so that's, you know, 16 to 20 before it ever goes to the editors. And then if you've ever dealt with Adobe Premiere, then you know there's another twelve hours right there. So, <laughs> uh, with with how intensive these are, uh, Dan also asked, um, "Did you start making longer videos because that fit YouTube better? Uh, did it did it change the quality of the videos when you started to do you know twenty minute kind of things?" Um, <clears throat> we hope not. We lucked into some of these algorithmic changes, and we were obsessed in the beginning with keeping things under four four minutes five minutes we thought for sure the attention span was going to be too small and we got to the movie uh, the room uh, which is almost rocky horror picture show like in its fame now and we just couldn't do it under five minutes it's just impossible that movie is just atrocious and so we put out i think it was a 10 minute video and it got just as many views as as ever or more and we were like oh maybe people don't care about the time limit so when we got around to Batman and Robin later that year, we did like a 20 minute video for the first time ever. And it was one of our most watched of the year. And so that really allowed us a bunch of things, right? So early on in the Avengers, the second video we ever made, Tony's up in space, right? He takes that nuke up into space and fires at the, at the aliens. And then he falls back through the portal, but he should not be falling at that point. There's, there's no gravitational reason at that point in space for him to be sucked back into the portal. But because this was a point where we were trying to keep videos under four minutes, the sin in that video is mm. there's no gravity in space, but Tony Stills falls. Well, of course there's gravity in space. I just misspoke, but it became one of the most infamous mistakes we've ever made um, because there is gravity in space, just maybe not enough in that one instance. And so what making the videos longer has allowed us to do is extrapolate some of those points to where instead of just giving you four words that you're going to misunderstand, I can now give you two sentences that will make, you know, that will both give you my sin and stave off your rebuttal that I know you're going to make. So I think in the end, it's made our content better uh, because it's allowed us to express our thoughts more clearly. This one's from Isaac. Uh, do you think Cinema Sins would be as popular as it is today without 
the criticism of uh, of the sins. Mm. Like, do you no. do, do you think had you go, had you gone straight up good guy through the whole thing and everybody loves you, would that have changed the outcome? Have I gone straight up what? Uh, good guy. You know that that uh, uh, everything is extremely positive and everybody loves you. I mean, I know you can't be super positive about sins, but uh, yeah, would that have have really changed the the trajectory? No. For you? I mean, listen, if we had if we had started out and our video series had been called um, Cinema Notes, and instead of everything wrong with it was things we noticed about this channel would never <laughs> have taken off. I'm not trying to be a dick. It, there is something about the divisive nature of the phrasing. Our video titles are everything wrong with that challenges you right. immediately to disagree or agree. And that starts discussion. And that was a very intentional choice. Um, I do see some criticism sometimes that Chris and I are just clickbait scam marketers because we spent some time doing video search engine optimization. Uh, but mm -hmm. that's just smart video search engine optimization to know that divisive wording is going to drive more traffic than happy wording. That's just, that's just smart marketing. It's not like there's no clickbait there. Anyway, <laughs> if I, if I see cinema constructive criticism, I am, I'm probably scrolling by. <laughs> I'm just not interested. <laughs> um, Dan Latch, this is a, this is a really good question. What was the first movie that you saw, uh, in a theater or not in a theater that you thought was bad before the film ended? Oh my. Oh my. There had to well, have been an original stinker in your history. You have to understand in college, my roommates, I lived in a suite. So we had six roommates and we shared one bathroom. Um, it was an awesome setup. But we, every Friday, we had bad movie night where we took turns going to the nearby video store and we intentionally rented three of the worst looking movies we could find. <laughs> and then we would just sit through them and laugh and joke and have fun and eat popcorn. I didn't walk out of any of those, but all of those movies were bad before they got to the end. Um, but I did walk out in theaters. Uh, I did walk out of the Sarah Michelle Geller magical bakery movie, Simply Irresistible, um, before that finished. I don't know if you recall this movie. But I never heard of that, no. Through It was in the early 2000s, I think, maybe late it sounds 90s. Like, it sounds like it was extremely resistible. <laughs> We was totally <laughs> resistible. She's a chef and through magic, her cooking is so good. It makes people fall in love with her. And she has a crab who's a friend pet and he hangs out in the kitchen and watches her cook. And it's suggested that he's the source of the magic. And uh, at the end of the movie, okay. there's this big ball and she and uh, the guy from Alias are dancing or something. And it cuts to the fucking crab in a tuxedo watching and I got up and said, all right, that's it for me. I'm out of here, folks. And I don't even know how much was left. I was gone. I was in my car. I was done with that movie. You mentioned uh, on bad movie nights, eating popcorn. Uh, Marco had a question about this. Do you eat Ooh, nice. popcorn while you watch movies? Is there a specific flavor? And if you, you prefer something else, we want to hear that. I'm a big fan of, okay, here's the deal. Working in a movie theater for as long as I did, one of the perks, if you're a manager, end of the night, leftover popcorn, you can take it home because it's not like they can serve it the next day unless you're this one evil manager I had that I did call food services on. Don't yell at me. Um, so again, having six, five other roommates in a college suite, I'd come home every night with a garbage bag full of popcorn. I was yes. the hero. Uh, but I, it put me off popcorn working in that job. I couldn't eat it for maybe 15 years. The smell of it just brought back 
these memories, but only within the last three or four years, I've started to enjoy popcorn again at the movies and I don't flavor it. I just put some butter on there and some salt and that's good enough for me. Although my wife likes to flavor it with all kinds of funky stuff, but I just like (laughs) butter and salt. The classic, the classic. Uh, Next one is from Jen, who works on Out of Frame. If you guys haven't seen the Out of Frame channel on YouTube, they look at TV shows and movies, uh, analyze them for some kind of social and political themes and and, uh, do a really excellent, fair job with that. It's it's really kind of one of the best channels in this genre. And she works on that with with Sean Malone, who we had on as a guest a long, long time ago talking about Stranger Things. She asks, what's something that you generally count as a sin that you actually really and really love as a consumer of film? Oh, it's got to be a guilty pleasure sin somewhere in there. That's a good question. I think it's probably the candles. Like, I love a good mood setting right i love a good vibe from a movie and one of the ways the movies do this is to put candles everywhere i think we joked about jupiter ascending earlier but i think there's a scene in that movie with like a thousand freaking candles on the floor um and it looks cool man it always looks awesome and i always enjoy it as a viewer but my the sin side of me is always forced to wrestle with the practicality of all those candles like yeah. like in a in the i think it was great gatsby somebody's going around putting out all the candles after the party and i'm like jesus by the time he's done it's going to be time to light all of them again the next morning (laughs) like it's just ridiculous when you break it down from a practical standpoint but the visuals of having a lot of candlelight i totally love i totally get that yeah that's cool yeah the logistics of candles are (laughs) a very real thing from setup to lighting to uh take down uh this is the last question we've got, and then we can we can get you to dinner in your family. Um, we want to say this to the end because it's about writing. It's about the book. And we'll put uh, links to your books in uh, oh, the description of this. So you. you guys can check out uh, the Able series and uh, the Sin origin story, which is on its way. Uh, Trev asks, at what point in developing a concept for a book do you just start writing? How much of the book's story do you have to have figured out beforehand if any at all Hmm. this is a good question i've done it it's a great question i've done it multiple ways uh the the first abel's book i did not know where i was going uh and in hindsight i had a lot of heavy editing to do because i meandered Uh, the second and third abel's book uh, i did what i call outlines and for me it's just the beats i want to know at least four or five main story beats the characters start here by chapter five or six, they encounter this kind of an, a situation. Um, and I like to have the climax, at least the general idea figured out. It's going to be these people in this place against this person. Um, but you can't plan it all. If you try and plan it all, you're going to paralyze yourself and you'll never get started. Just plot out the beats and the characters where, where you want to move the pieces in a general way. But then get from beat to beat as you write and give yourself the freedom to get from point A to point B uh, spontaneously instead of locking yourself in early to that to that particular route. I think that fits with books, with videos. It's uh, There's a phrase in entrepreneurship analysis paralysis where mm. you sit and like rethink your business plan and don't actually start the business. Um, mm-hmm. 
you, you know, you're, you're not going to be right with whether it's a, a book plot or character development or a YouTube video or a business. Uh, you're going to make some mistakes along the way and you don't know until you've made them. And then you adjust yep. and you figure it out, but, but you keep moving. And so what you just described, uh, I think that's excellent advice for pretty much every project ever aside from like <laughs> building a house you don't want to half-ass building a house you, no, you, do you have don't. to plan that out properly you, know, you but need just to know about the everything creative <laughs> yeah, that's right yeah you gotta have the beats uh, but all the creative stuff all the business stuff i i think that's awesome you outline it you get the beats you get going and adjust along the way yeah yeah all right uh, I, I'm just annoyed, Matt. You've never told me the phrase analysis paralysis before. How has that have. never come me up? Out. You tuned me out. You've tuned me out since like 2014. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I bet I've said that's, it a hundred times. That's gotta be, that's gotta be what it is. I was finally <laughs> listening to you because you you were compelling for once. And I love that analysis paralysis. I want to get yeah. that tattooed on my forearm. Um, it's totally real. It's the number one thing that I encounter when I talk to people about YouTube stuff, whether it's at a conference and I'm doing a thing or just casually like in Twitter DMs, man, just start the thing, just get going, you know, get the basic idea down and get going. It's absolutely going to be better than if you sit there and try to make the perfect video, which as we know, uh, no video is going to be without sin. So it's not going to be perfect anyway. You might as well there just start. That's there you right. Go. Synergy. All right, we're gonna we're gonna let you go, but um, uh, check out CinemaSins if, if for some reason you just got back from Mars on like I don't know like an, <laughs> an eight year tour or something and you don't know CinemaSins, check that out. Um, you may not be familiar though with the book that is coming out, Original Sin from Preacher's Kid to the Creation of CinemaSins. Uh, Jeremy Scott, thanks so much for hanging out with us and hey, uh, have a great thanks dinner. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your guys' time and the time of your listeners, and I don't take it for granted. And let me know when the episode drops publicly, and I'm happy to promote it on my Twitters and such. That's we will awesome. do that. All, All right. right. Thanks. Thank we'll you, see guys. You, Space Cowboys. Thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. We'd like to extend a huge thank you and congratulations to the Tots and Dumpster crew who save tiny little lives every month. A tremendous shout-out to our elite baby gang. Trevstad, Boromir, Botdogs, Chinchilla, Isaac, Conrad, James, Jeff Davis, Patrick Pister, Baseweight, and Dojangles. And thank you to our grizzled, battle-hardened child infantry. Jen Mefisanti, Kevin Menard, Mikhail Steinke, Risebread, Sean Malone, Triple Question Mark, Monahim, Ryan Kinder, Sheep, and Maruko. Thank you as well to our producer and editor, Ben Webster, and to our media manager, Dan Yosua. The Create Unknown is an unknown media production. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.